as we, again, ap approach these last few days of Advent, we are remembering, we're entering into this recognition that our God is King. A King who, who made the earth, a King who has come to the earth in Jesus Christ, a King who is going to come again. And that's sort of at the, the heart of this morning's message as well. So to help us kind of carry that big idea with us, I just want to, to do a very brief call and response. This is just the very first verse of Psalm 97, where it says, the Lord is king, and then the response is, let the earth rejoice. So let's try that together. I'll say the Lord is king, you say, let the earth rejoice. Ready? The Lord is king. The Lord is king. Okay, keep that in mind as we move forward this morning. As we've been looking at the story of Luke's gospel this year, I've, I've made sort of the point that the goal as we read these first two chapters and this is not just, just to hear the words, not just to hear the ideas but to notice the songs that are present in Luke's gospel. As a gospel writer, I think Luke is making the case that one of the best ways to hear the Christmas story is to hear it sung. And we hear in this season, in the month of December, maybe even a little before, the, the airwaves come alive with the songs of Christmas. And if you hit scan on your radio button and you're commute to work in the morning, you can hear pop Christmas carols, you can hear country Christmas carols, you can even hear rock carols occasionally. But one of the, the genres that I've often sort of lamented is missing on the radio dial, particularly here in New England, is gospel music. Any of you gospel music fans? I can't claim to be an aficionado, but there's something about the power and, and the energy in a full-blown gospel choir, the message of, of Advent and of Christmas. And so this week, I, I couldn't find it on my radio dial, but I did find a video clip on YouTube of a gospel choir singing Mary's song, the song uh, that, that my soul will magnify the Lord. I wanted to play that for you just as a primer this morning. we could capture some of that energy sometimes. Right, when, you, when you hear gospel choirs, you understand why they're called gospel, right? Why, what it is that we believe is good news. They've taken Mary's prayer here and, 
And they've added, I think, the, the conviction and the wonder and the power of those words that, that often we lose in, in just simply reading over them. And as I was appreciating that song and a few other gospel songs this past week, I found out that this particular performance was part of a national gospel choir competition from several years ago. And the idea was to take the best gospel choirs from throughout the United States and, and in our sort of American way of doing things, to put them into head-to-head competition with one another so that they could identify the nation's top gospel act. I think that the competition was called How Sweet the Sound. And I mean, they, they have some amazing performances online if you want to go stream them. But initially, that idea, the idea of sort of pitting gospel choirs against one another seemed a little out of place, a little antithetical, right? Isn't the gospel, the, the main idea behind gospel singing to, to offer worship, right? Isn't that the direction of what's happening rather than competition? And it, it made me think about, well, how then do you evaluate gospel songs? How could you say this gospel song, this gospel is better than another. And as we open the second chapter of Luke's gospel today, I think in a way Luke is asking this same question. He's asking us to compare different gospel songs. And that might seem like a new idea to us, but I think you'll see as we go along what Luke is doing. Luke, as he tells the Christmas story and, and as things really begin to heat up here and, and the incarnation is, is upon us, he sets out before us two different gospel songs, two different gospel proclamations. And he invites you and I to judge which of them is more compelling, which of them is a winner. We are invited to be evaluators of these gospel songs today. So if you'll open to Luke chapter 2, start with verse 1 this morning. Luke begins with a Roman presentation of the gospel that's being presented and heard even in a far-flung place like Palestine at the beginning. ...for us as we open God's word. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, that you are the Lord of heaven and earth, that you are a Lord who stood at creation to breathe this world, each of us, into being. You are a, you are a Lord who has come in the fullness of time, in human flesh, to redeem our story from the power of sin and death. And you are a Lord who desires to reign over all things, to make all things new, and to come again to live with your people forever. Lord, as we hear this gospel proclamation this morning, may the words of my mouth as I teach, may the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord. May they bring us into the reign and the rule of your spirit, which is truly good news. 
Amen. Hear the words of Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Now, we probably didn't notice it just now as we were listening to this familiar passage. But I would suggest that to the very first hearers of Luke's gospel, this passage is set to a kind of background music. They would hear something playing in the background that you and I might look. That's because Luke's story here is layered on top of a kind of gospel tune that was being proclaimed and announced in every city of the Roman world at this time. Not the gospel of Luke the Evangelist, not yet the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the gospel according to Augustus Caesar. For you and me, the the word gospel has a, a churchy Overtone, a churchy kind of connotation. It, it has spiritual sort of significance to us. But that wasn't necessarily the case in the days of Caesar Augustus. Gospel comes from the Greek term euangelion, which simply means a, a, a message of good import, a, a message of victory, a message of good news. And it was often at that time used in service of the empire. It was a term used to convey the power and the victory of Rome. And so the the good news, according to Caesar, was this. That the reign and rule of his kingdom was spreading to every corner of the known world. This was his gospel. And I I want to give you just one concrete example. If you dig around in the historical records of this period, you'll see frequently these kinds of proclamations being made. But this is one in particular that was recorded just a few years before the census Luke speaks of here. And it was issued by the governor and the provincial uh, uh, sort of assembly of Asia Minor, one of the Roman states in modern-day Turkey. And they issued this decree that that everyone in their province should recognize the birthday of Augustus Caesar. And in, in making this proclamation, this is the language they used. It said, on this day, we're to celebrate a savior who put an end to war and established 
all things. That's exalted language. We're celebrating a man whose birth marked for the world the beginning of good tidings. The beginning of gospel through his coming. Again, these are words directed to to Augustus Caesar. New Testament commentator Joel Green explains that throughout his reign, these words were used often. And they were coupled with proclamations announcing Caesar's, not only his, his good news, not only the coming of his kingdom, but naming him as the Son of God. Naming him as the Savior of the entire world. If you lived in the days of the Roman Empire, the gospel of Caesar was inescapable. His power located in this one personality was everywhere. Caesar conquered whole nations. Caesar set your political boundaries. Caesar ordered censuses to be taken throughout the known world. And all of these things were part of his gospel, part of his good news. If you boil it down, the the essence of the good news according to Caesar was this. That Caesar was king, full stop. And that that to be his subjects was good news. It It was good for you to render your life in service to him. But I think as Luke begins to write here, he's asking us to stop for a moment and to evaluate that gospel. To stop long enough to ask, is that really good news? And as we look back through the verses we've just read, we see that it's thanks to the good news of Caesar that families throughout the empire, even pregnant and expectant families are sent packing on long journeys so that Caesar could count them and tax them and assign them their proper place in his empire. It was thanks to the gospel of Caesar that Joseph and Mary here are sent to his ancestral village and they're forced to to lean on the hospitality of their distant relatives as their firstborn child arrives. you look at verses 5, 6, and 7, it's interesting to me sort of where Luke leaves us at the birth of Jesus Christ. Despite all the the sort of angelic visitations that take place early in the pregnancy, when Jesus finally arrives, right, there, there are no initial fireworks, no epiphanies here at the birth itself to these two parents. Right, they're left with a newborn child to care for, two tired parents who are are struggling to sort of make ends meet in this overcrowded village while Rome goes on doing its thing. And so the person that we proclaim as king, the one who we lift up and, and live under their gospel, that has real consequences for our lives. It has implications bears out in particular ways. 
And while we are probably not used to, to proclaiming the, the reign and the gospel of a particular political leader today, I wonder what gospels are ubiquitous in our age. What good news is being proclaimed and, and offered for us to receive in our postmodern and globalized and technological world? Who or what are we being invited to, to live under and, and to lift up as king today? There are, I think, a whole host of competing gospels. Right? Affluence is king. Or my tribe, my political group is king. Or maybe I myself am king. I, I need to put the pieces of my world together at an individual level. Or, or maybe we feel that despite all of these claims, our world is sort of in, in anarchy. There's, there are claims for, for gospel kingship, but, but our world is in chaos. Whatever the case, whatever gospel we live under then will have implications for us. But even as Caesar here is proclaiming his kingship, I think Luke wants to call our attention to these little hints, these little reminders that perhaps his kingdom isn't the only show in town. That perhaps there's another kingdom lurking out there somewhere. And we see him make an allusion to this, especially at the end of verse 4. Luke reminds us that as Caesar orders his census, as the world responds to his kingship, this story brings us into the town of Bethlehem. This story brings us to those who belong not to Caesar, but to the house and to the line of David. That name should ring a bell. David, who hundreds of years before Caesar and his empire ruled the world, David was Israel's greatest king. A king who began his rise to the throne, his rise to his rule and reign as a shepherd boy in the fields just outside of Bethlehem. And interestingly enough, that's precisely where Luke steers us next in this telling of a different gospel. Look with me at verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, the fields nearby Bethlehem, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. 
we hear Luke sounding the beginnings of a new gospel tune. And in the first eight verses of chapter 2, Luke quickly takes us from the top of the world, the, the announcement of Caesar, the emperor of Rome, and now we've been brought to the very bottom of society itself. We've been taken to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. We began with with Caesar who sleeps in his Roman palace. Now we're taken to migratory shepherds who sleep among their sheep. We've gone from someone who claims to control the entire known world to men who are too poor to imagine any sort of, of, of similar idea. Nothing in the life of these Bedouin people even remotely approaches the idea of glory in any worldly sense. But Luke says it's to them, to this unusual, this sort of marginal group of people in society, that a messenger is dispatched with a gospel proclamation. This time the message comes not from Rome, but from heaven itself. And we're told that there among the sheep, an angel of awesome and glorious and terrifying presence appears with this pronouncement. I bring you good news of great joy. Today in the town of David has been born a Savior, a Messiah, a Lord. Let's unpack that proclamation for a second. On the face of things, these angels' words seem rather similar to that pronouncement we read a few minutes ago, celebrating the the birth of Augustus Caesar. Except, here the angel is not speaking about Caesar, he's speaking about a different king born today in Bethlehem. And it seems to me then that that the angel's words are confrontational in a sense. They are calling for a gospel competition, a gospel showdown. Here we're having the gospel of Caesar announced, his, his edict going out from Rome to order the entire Roman world. But the angel comes bringing the gospel of heaven. And Luke is inviting us, along with the shepherds, to be the judge. Which of these messages is truly good news? Which one do we want to to live under the reign and rule of? And I think were we to read through the Christmas story too quickly, we would miss the, the, the expansive implications contained in this announcement of the angel. According to the gospel proclaimed by this angel from heaven, a kingdom bigger than the known Roman world is about to be revealed. And it will come with a king who will confront each and every gospel prevailing in our world, whether in that day or in the present moment. Are you and I really prepared for a gospel proclamation like this one? Are we prepared 
to receive and, and to enter into what it means to live under the reign and rule of this new king. To help the shepherds understand whose gospel they're receiving, the angel provides them in verse 12 with a sign. Remember, they've just been told a king, a messiah, a lord of all things has come to the earth. And here's your sign. You'll find this savior child wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. (laughs) That's right, in a manger. Now, we've heard it so many times, it sounds familiar, normal to us. But these are are strange words for for the savior of the world to be wrapped in peasants' blankets and laid to to sleep in in livestock furnishings. What, What kind of savior comes to the earth in this way, proclaiming this as a sign of his birth? Well, it turns out that that this Savior is the Lord of heaven and earth. But he's the kind of Lord who has directed things so that Mary and Joseph will bring him into human existence, will, will bear him into human birth in the humble home of a, of a peasant family in Bethlehem. Why? So that even these shepherds might feel comfortable darkening the door of his birthplace. He's the kind of Lord who as he comes to the earth, he wants the announcement and the proclamation of his gospel to start on the lips of the poor, of the unsophisticated, of the forgotten people in this culture. He's the kind of Lord who in his coming comes not with with a message of great self-importance that everyone must do his bidding, but his announcement is that he has come to share his glory with us. He's a king who's come to live among us to bring great joy for all people, not just for those at the top. And so I think with this sign, Luke is asking us to consider which of these Gospels, the Gospel of Caesar or the Gospel of this Lord born in Bethlehem, which is truly beautiful? Which of these Gospels has true power? Which of these Gospels would we rather live our lives out, under and through and in? Luke asks us to consider, what if money and and sex and power and politics don't actually rule our world? What if instead the Lord himself truly is our king? Sometimes I think that that proclamation that God is king and that we can rejoice in his kingship is one we can overlook. We can become too distracted or too discouraged or even just too comfortable in our surroundings to remember it. In my morning quiet times, I've been walking my way through the Psalms frequently this month. And there's a a recurring message again and again in the Psalms that, that the Lord is king over all things. And that because he is king, we may rejoice 
We may revel in that goodness. We may find our safety and our security and our flourishing in him. And so we need the Lord's help to be reminded of his reign and rule. And the shepherds perhaps needing help and encouragement to believe that message as well are given a, a further sort of gospel proclamation to back up the angels' first words here. And it comes sort of in a, in a flash mob of gospel choir angels. Verses 13 and 14. It says, Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace. ...to those on whom his favor rests. This is the the big, sort of powerful gospel number... ...that comes to back up the first angel's proclamation. I think it's, it's interesting to think about how back in the village... ...back where the birth has taken place... ...in all of these towns there are people being ordered... ...and counted and numbered... And I'm sure that in those villages there were small regiments of Roman soldiers hanging around to enforce the orders of Caesar. Right? A, a not-so-subtle reminder of where the balance of power rests. But Luke says, out here in the fields, for a, a brief moment the veil between heaven and earth is removed and we're able to see in a new way. These shepherds see the power of God himself seated all around them in the spiritual realms. And so on a a day in which Rome may believe that they have successfully annexed Israel and, and annexed the entire world to do their bidding, we see that Bethlehem is surrounded by an army of heaven's angels. Those sent to ensure that this gospel proclamation is properly announced, properly celebrated. And the song that they sing highlights the realities, the the sort of twofold realities of this gospel of Jesus Christ. The one he has come to bring. They say glory to God in the highest heaven, but on earth Peace to those on whom his favor rests. They highlight, firstly, the spectacular and universal and absolute glory of God. Glory to him in the highest heaven. Glory to the God who is the only subject, the only gospel worthy of our worship. The gospel they proclaim reminds us that there is no one like our God. He is uniquely fit to reign as king. But secondly, and maybe even more stunning, is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God has chosen to take that that unique and supreme glory and authority and bring it upon the earth. And he does so in a way that brings peace and brings favor and brings his graciousness to take root on the earth. The glorious king of all things comes 
to make himself a savior for the people he loves. And so you, as, you, as you and I are just 48 hours away from Christmas Day, I challenge you to hear this gospel song and to hear the import of its royal proclamation. It proclaims not that you and I are king, not that Caesar is king, but that the Lord Jesus Christ is king of all things. A king who is pouring out his grace and his beauty and his favor upon the earth. This is truly good news of great joy for all people. Let's conclude by saying the first part of Psalm 97. The Lord is king. Let the earth rejoice. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that wherever in our deep hearts and spirits and minds we wrestle with what is good news, what what is it that we can live our lives in and under? Who can we serve? Where is the assurance of our future and our hope? Lord, I pray that we would remember you are king And your care for us is never ending. Lord, would you work to bring that gospel into a place of flourishing in our hearts, in our church, in our community. Lord, may we embody this because we are people filled with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.